listening to Gaywire on CJSR, your homegrown source for lesbian, gay, bisexual, trans, and queer news, culture, stories, and events from Edmonton and beyond. Listening to Gaywire on CJSR 88.5 FM. Uh, it's me, Alexa, in the booth today. JD's off, uh, but we'll be back in the coming weeks. Just a reminder, too, uh, we're podcasting now. So if you've missed past episodes and you just need to get your fill of queer radio from Edmonton, uh, you can do that by listening to our podcast. You can get them wherever you get podcasts uh just search gay wire and it's a little orange icon that will pop up um there's episodes from 2013 and 2018 so you can figure that out um yeah on today's program oh and also we sort of edit them they don't come up uh once a week we sort of put them up in in clusters and groups so they come up uh, a couple times a month instead of every week we're sorry for that but we're you know we have to edit out all the things that we say that aren't necessarily amazing <laughs> um so on this week's uh show we're going to be uh talking about well actually there's three weird news stories from the united states um one involves uh, Mike Pence and John Oliver. One involves Ben Carson uh, being ridiculous. And the third involves Cynthia Nixon, because she has officially declared that she's going to run for the Democratic nomination for their governor race in New York State. Um, also, on Monday night, there was the Chancellor's Forum uh, at the University of Alberta, um, which this one, it's a new initiative in the, the inaugural Chancellor's Forum, uh, looked at the 10th, 20th, sorry, the 20th anniversary of the landmark uh, Rend decision by the Supreme Court of Canada. Um, that unanimously held that the lack of protection for discrimination based on sexual orientation in Alberta's human rights legislation was unconstitutional as it violated the Charter of Rights. So they held a forum on Monday night involving a whole bunch of different people who had been involved in bringing that case to the Supreme Court. Um, It was moderated by the Edmonton Journal's Paula Simons. And we're not going to play that full thing for you, but we are going to play different clips of it just to give you an idea of what they discussed, because uh, it was really interesting to hear from uh, people who obviously were directly involved in the case. Um, Delwyn Vreen, who is the person at the center of it all, wasn't there. Uh, he lives, according to Paula Simon's reports, a bit of a private life in uh, France. Uh, so he wasn't at the event, um, but I'm going to read bits from an article that she did, uh, a feature article that she did because of the 20th anniversary and this talk in which she sort of discusses his personal uh, reaction and feelings about all of this. Each Thursday, a new issue of View Weekly awaits you at your favorite newsstand, be it on the street or on the web at viewweekly.com. And while you're thinking about that, Think about this. Through thoughtful and intelligent journalism, VIEW covers topics too often ignored, marginalized, or misrepresented by the mainstream. VIEW Weekly, free press in the truest sense. As in, you don't have to pay for it. Would you like to learn how to play records on the radio? 
Would you like to broadcast your thoughts to a huge audience over the airwaves? Almost anyone can volunteer at CJSR, Edmonton's community radio station. We will train you how to sound keen on the microphone. You can learn how to play records, compact discs, and the exciting new MP3, the format of tomorrow. Or you can train to be a big city news reporter or produce jocular commercials just like this one. It's as easy as one, two, three. Call 780-492-2577 or electronic mail. Volunteer at CJSR.com. Consider your exciting future at CJSR today. It's time for your spoonful of queer alphabet soup, and today we're defining drag king and drag queen. A person who performs masculinity and or femininity theatrically. A person who dresses in gender-marked clothing and makeup for their own and other people's appreciation, as well as for pay, entertainment, or political purposes. Many drag kings and queens perform by singing, dancing, and lip-syncing. And a drag king, or queen's cross-dressing, is usually on a part-time basis. Brenda, I'm at the Tickle Trunk at 9923-82 Avenue, and you're listening to Gaywire. Hey, there you are listening to Gaywire. As I was saying, uh, we're going to start off with some weird American news uh, to get us into this. The first is that um, uh, Ben Carson, who is in charge of housing uh, uh, in the United States, um, has said over the past week that he thinks that um, really bad things will happen if you um, uh, allow homeless trans people uh, to live in the same shelters as cisgender people. So he is housing and urban development secretary, Ben Carson, on Tuesday in the midst of uh, discussions about the fact that his that he had spent ridiculous amounts of money purchasing a dining room table for his office and has been under great scrutiny for that. Um, justified his agency's decision to pull anti-discrimination training materials from uh, his department's website, calling the removal a response to women who were, quote, not comfortable uh, being in a shelter with, quote, somebody who had a very different anatomy, end quote. The materials... um, were noted in a letter to the uh, secretary written last year uh, by Democratic senators. They were developed in consultation with direct service providers to help ensure safe and equal access to shelters for LGBTQ people experiencing homelessness. Um, he continued, we obviously believe in equal rights for everybody, including LGBT, the LGBTQ community. He didn't say Q, I added that by accident. Um, Uh, he said at the hearing, but we also believe in equal rights for the women in the shelters and shelters where there are men and there are equal rights. Uh, So we want to look at things that really provide everyone 
for everybody and doesn't impede on the rights of those for the sake of the other. Obviously, Carson here is uh, using the same arguments and rhetoric that have been long used uh, to deny access for trans people to public spaces and non-public spaces, including the idea that um, men will go into uh, women's spaces and try to inflict some sort of violence or at least discomfort. Um, that obviously, and we've said this many times on Gay Wire. There's no documented evidence in all of North America that um, violence has been inflicted on a cisgender woman by uh, somebody saying that they're trans and then going into a public facility, a gender segregated public facility, nor is there any evidence that someone who is trans has done that and used that reasoning to try to get away with it or that they've done it at all. So there's actually no documented cases of trans people um, inflicting that kind of violence in these spaces. Um, but also interesting to note that uh, we're in an era or a time where uh, he feels comfortable saying we believe in the equal rights for everybody, including LGBT people. And then there's a giant but in which he says uh, that trans people shouldn't be allowed in um, women's shelters. Something also to keep in mind uh, is the fact that uh, trans people make up a disproportionate high um, uh, percentage of um, homeless uh, populations, as street-involved populations, as people on the verge of homelessness or people um, in critical uh, poverty situations, um, in large part because of things like uh, discrimination, uh, violence, the inability to be like not being hired, being fired, and in, in many parts of the United States, uh, it is still um, you can fire gay and trans people uh, without any sort of repercussions or uh, recourse. So, um, there you go. That's just another day in the uh, Trump administration. Speaking of which, um, there was uh, another um, pretty funny incident with uh, Mike Pence, the vice president, who is known to be um, quite anti-LGBT. Um, going so far as he was, uh, when he was governor of Indiana, supported policies that would make it legal, essentially discriminate against LGBT people. Um, he has been long involved with Focus on the Family, which is a major organization in the United States that has been really leading the charge for 20 or 30 years on a whole bunch of anti-gay and anti-trans initiatives, everything from uh, opposing same-sex marriage to opposing all of the trans rights bills that have gone through. Um, they are anti-abortion, uh, all of this sorts of things. So he's very, he's very tight with them. Uh, going so far as to like give the the leader uh, awards and, and and giving speeches that focus on the family events and all of this sort of stuff. So, um, I, you know, very um, unapologetically um, anti-LGBT. Although he denies it publicly as well and uses really nice language of inclusion and equality and all of those sorts of things. Anyway, um, it was uh, the Pence family uh, have a bunny. Um, named Marlon Bundo, and uh, they have put out a book um, about like a day in the life of this bunny who lives near and around the White House. Um, and in or in in, a, in an attempt to like uh, sort of protest this and poke fun of it, John Oliver, who is the host of Last Week Tonight on HBO, also wrote a book about a bunny who lives around the White House, um, titled a very similar title. Um, but the bunny is gay, and the book is all about how this bunny sort of falls in love with another boy bunny, and they um, live happily ever after. And so John Oliver released his book uh, this past week. 
And it's actually been reported that his John Oliver's gay bunny book has outsold Mike Pence's straight bunny book. Uh, And John Oliver has said that all of the profits that he gets from the book are going to go to the Trevor Project and to AIDS United in the United States. Um, So if you want to help keep this, uh, what is being called a super gay bunny book, uh, topping um, Mike Pence's book, then you can go ahead and do that. Um, so there you go. It's actually it says that that um, John Oliver's book, John Oliver's book, is a shot is has shot to the top of Amazon's bestseller list, um, and it's beating out books uh, and it's beating out books like James Comey's um, memoir uh, in terms of pre-sales and all of those sorts of things. So there you go. Ridiculous American news for you. Um, the last thing uh, that I'll talk about from the United States is that you may have heard that Sex in the City star, former star Cynthia Nixon, is uh, running uh, or has officially declared that she will be running for the Democratic nomination for governor of New York State. Um, so the media had a great time making all of the Sex in the City jokes uh, that they possibly could. But also it didn't take long for... Um, um, uh, gay jokes to come out. Cynthia Nixon um, uh, said is n- known to have a female partner. It's really interesting though because she um, said that she she sort of has gone back and forth and not officially said if she's a lesbian, but she has said that she's bisexual. Um, and then there was actually backlash um, within the gay community uh, because she said that, you know, sexuality is a thing that changes and she didn't want to sort of her identity wasn't fixed and that over her lifetime she has um, been attracted to different people. And there was actually backlash in the gay community saying, like, you're saying that sexuality can change. And she was like, no, I'm just saying that it's more complicated uh, than we presented as being. Um, And so, of course, some people in the gay community saw that as threatening for some reason because she wouldn't declare um, what her identity is. But um, it just came out this week that um, one of the people... um, who is on the her opponent's campaign um, uh, said that um, uh, Cynthia Nixon was an um, unqualified lesbian. Uh, and the interesting thing is that the person who made this comment also is a lesbian uh, and identifies as such. So it was a bit of a weird moment um, where that person since apologized saying like, you know, I'm sorry for bringing these things up. Uh, Cynthia, Cynthia Nixon tweeted in response, quote, I just want to say tonight that she was technically right. I don't have my certificate from the Department of Lesbian Affairs, though in my defense, there's a lot of paperwork required, uh, end quote. Also, Cynthia Nixon said that, uh, um, you know, her sexuality should have nothing to do with um, uh, her running and all of these sorts of things. Uh, but... Uh, I don't know. That could, that's up for debate, certainly. Um, an interesting thing about it, though, is that, um, and this is coming from Vox uh, online, is that they're making the argument that like this whole discussion actually erases the fact that Cynthia Nixon um, uh, identifies as bisexual or at least not a lesbian. Um, and so when we're talking about all of these things and she's already been like called a lesbian and she's like, um, you know, been put in this position that she actually doesn't identify that way and that an entire sort of group of people that identify as um, uh, 
as non-binary in terms of their sexuality or bisexual um, get erased. And so I have a feeling that she's just going to be clumped into um, being identified as uh, a lesbian, despite the fact that she hasn't really called herself that. Um, yeah, so we can look forward to uh, potentially anti-bisexual, anti-lesbian stuff coming out of that race. Uh, one of her major, and what she has said, and I mean, uh, one of her major um, focus will be public education. And so that's long been the reason that she said that she's running for office in New York State. Okay, so we're going to come back with uh, a discussion of the 20th anniversary of Rend. On March 24th, Mile Zero Dance is thrilled to present Mari Bito, a world premiere from international buto dance artists Yuko Kazeki and Mari Osanai. Mari Bito in Portuguese means the sea and river, but in Japanese, Mari Bito is a spirit or monster that visits from beyond the ocean as if from another world. Don't miss Mari Bito, Saturday, March 24th at 8 p.m. at Mile Zero Dance Studio. $15 for members, $20 for non-members. For more info, visit milezerodance.com. to it, Simoin on CJSR 88.5 FM in the City of Champions. Well, it's JoJo on the Friday morning show. 9 to 11 a.m. sharp. Yeah, yeah. Bright and early. Oh, no, 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 no. It's a Friday morning show. Bannock and tea. Well, it's Friday. Join us. (laughs) It is revolutionary for any trans person to choose to be seen and visible in a world that tells us we should not exist. Laverne Cox. Hey there, we're Gaywire. It is almost 6.30 on Thursday, the 22nd. As I said, we're going to get into uh, the Chancellor's Forum that took place uh, this Monday night at the University of Alberta. Um, It was uh, the first of uh, what will be many forums um, that are going to consider a whole bunch of different questions uh, within the University of Alberta and wider community. This one in particular uh, considered what has been uh, called one of the 10 most important decisions impacting the Canadian Charter of Rights and Freedoms, uh, in which 2018 now marks the 20th anniversary of the landmark Wren decision by the Supreme Court of Canada. And that decision unanimously held that the lack of protection for discrimination based on sexual orientation in Alberta's human rights legislation was an unconstitutional violation of the Charter of Rights and Freedoms. So what that essentially means is the Supreme Court uh, ruled that uh, because uh, Alberta didn't have sexual orientation in its human rights legislation, it was going against what the Charter uh, deems um, 
should be protected uh, as legal rights. And we'll get into all the details of how all of that worked and how the decision came to be. Um, they give, uh, I'll, I'll go through the talk in which they explain different parts of the court, the, the, of the case that went all the way to the Supreme Court and what that meant for sexual orientation rights in Alberta and across the country and what it meant for um, a whole bunch of other uh, gay uh, and lesbian rights. And then there's uh, controversy of, over how and to what degree and how effectively um, that decision led to um, the recognition of gender identity and gender expression rights um, and trans rights. And we'll get to that because that was one of the questions that was asked during the discussion. But before we get into all of those questions, um, just to give you an idea of what the panel was like, it consisted of Madam Justice Sheenal Greckel, who is the Alberta Court uh, on the Alberta Court of Appeal and led the counsel for the Delvin Vreen uh, case. It also included Justice Julie Lloyd, who is the provincial court judge and co-counsel to the Canadian Bar Association and acted as an intervener in the case. Um, Michael Fair, who is the chair of the University of Alberta Board of Governors, uh, former city councillor and was involved in the activist side of uh, the decision and everything that became that came before and after. It also included Doug Stollery, who was the chancellor of the University of Alberta and was co-counsel on the uh, Delwyn Reed uh, case. And finally, it also included Christopher Wells, who is the ISMIS, um, or Institute for Sexual Minority Studies and Services, faculty director and assistant professor in, in, in education here at the University of Alberta. Uh, finally, it was moderated by Paula Simons, who is a uh, long, long time Edmonton Journal um, reporter as well as columnist. In the uh, week leading up to uh, this discussion, uh, she um, uh, wrote a really a really um, interesting feature in the Edmonton Journal, um, giving more of the details of exactly sort of what led up to the case. And she has since published a, um, a reflection on the uh, panel that happened this Monday, if you want to go ahead and read that. I just thought I'd uh, read a, a bit of what she wrote um, in the feature leading up to the event. Um, she says, quote, Vrend versus Alberta is one of the most important civil rights moments in Canadian history. The landmark case didn't just establish gay rights in Alberta. The ruling changed people's understanding of the Charter of Rights um, and the role of the courts in protecting minority communities. And Dalvin Vrend uh, became the face of that battle. She continues, it wasn't a role he ever sought out. He still doesn't see himself as a fighter or a rebel. He is an intensely private person. He never wanted to become a gay rights icon. It was just something, he says, that happened, something that changed Alberta law and Canadian society and changed his own fate forever. Uh, Vreen says, quote, luckily it's not part of my life anymore. Uh, he now uh, makes his home in Paris. France, where he works as a website developer. He has rarely spoken on the pr to the press about the part he played in shaping Canadian law and culture, saying, quote, some people say, oh, you're so brave to be doing this, but I'm not so sure I was. You just sort of do it one day at a time. I'm not sure I knew at the beginning that this was going to be so difficult. I didn't want to spend my life fighting the government, end quote. Uh, Wren's path to becoming the face of Canada's LGBT uh, civil rights uh, movement, according to Paula Simons, started in 1987 when he took a job as a lab instructor and laboratory coordinator at King's College 
here in Edmonton, now known as the King's University, a private Christian post-secondary institution. He didn't keep his sexual identity from his boss, a chemistry professor he much admired. He told him when he was hired. The prof said it didn't make any difference. Good performance reviews and steady performances uh, promotions marked Vreen's four years of work at King's. Uh, to which he said, quote, some people did know I was gay and some people didn't, I guess. Then a powerful member of the King's Board of Governors found out about about Vrend. Uh, Vrend said, quote, he was a major donor from southern Alberta and he really didn't want me to be there. I was told he threatened to pull his funding if I stayed. And so in January of 1991, the college president who had known about Vrend's sexual orientation for some time asked Vrend to resign. And when he refused to step down, the college fired him. For Vrend, who had just turned 25 and just become the president of GALA, which is Edmonton's Gay and Lesbian Awareness Group, it seemed logical to file a discrimination complaint with the Alberta Human Rights Commission. But he said they said, no, we can't take a, uh, your complaint. Sexual orientation is not a protected ground. We have, um, uh, we have no basis for your complaint. So, Vrend appealed the tribunal's decision to the Alberta Court of Queen's Bench, and he won. But the fight wasn't over. The province appealed successfully, and at that point, Vrend and his legal team decided to take the case to the country's top court. And so now I'm going to play a first part from the uh, Chancellor's Forum talk, in which uh, it uh, features um, uh, Madam uh, Justice uh, Sheila Greckel, who was the um, lead counsel for Delwyn Vrend uh, at the Supreme Supreme Court. And before we begin, Claire is going to put up for us a little tiny clip. The sound quality is not great, so we chose a very short clip, but this is Sheila Greckel's opening remarks to the Supreme Court of Canada as she is explaining who Delwyn Vreend was and why this case mattered. So I thought it was a good place for us to start too. Record shows that in January of 1990, Mr. Vreen questioned the administrative handbook of King's College, which had a reference to, quote, immorality as a ground for termination. He was asked about and confirmed his homosexuality. Discussion ensued within the college for a period of a year, after which Mr. Vreen was asked to resign and upon declining, he was fired. On reading this material, one is immediately struck by the fact that Mr. Breen must, in essence, go to bat for himself in his employment setting over what this court has described as his personhood, a characteristic fundamental to his personhood. He was, in essence, asked by his employer to deny what Mr. Justice Laforet called in Egan a deeply personal characteristic which is either unchangeable or changeable only at unacceptable personal cost. For any of us in the courtroom, on any ground, and as women of my generation well know, to explain that we are as good as, despite the characteristic that is questioned, is profoundly humiliating. But none of us who sometimes face that discrimination, as the cases indicate, often we, or we all do at some point in our lives, none of us is asked to pretend that we are not what we are in a word, to deny ourselves. So I want to start, I mean, we really started with Sheila, but now we're going to start with Michael. I want you to give us, if you would, a bit of a prequel. 
Delwyn Vreend was fired in 1991. Yep. That's not so very long ago, but it's before most undergraduates at the U of A were born. What was life like for gay Albertans in the 1990s? As we approach the, the 1990s, uh, we just come through uh, a number of, of uh, aspects that, that were, I think, uh, relatively difficult. One of them being the, the uh, AIDS that that, that was uh, first um, identified in Edmonton in 1984, which was uh, taking in lives of a number of people. Also, uh, it took a lot of energy to be able to respond to that. And there was a great deal of, um, oh, I remember... Um, too well that that people who would say, well, you know, people who get AIDS, they deserve it. They should all die anyway. Um, they're just gay kind of thing, and and they have no place here, et cetera, et cetera. And that, and I remember hearing that on talk shows because I was oftentimes asked to be on talk shows. You know, we didn't have uh, internet or, or tweet. Uh, we couldn't tweet in those days. It was talk shows <laughs> that that people would call into, kind of thing, and that. And and so there was a great deal of of um, those kinds of things going on. Many people, including myself, um, were quite concerned about um, how we were being seen as individuals and as citizens of the city um, and how we were being treated um, and that and and people were being discriminated against we argued and and individuals who, who thought they were being discriminated against and were went to the Human Rights Commission which could not take the cases because the the, the uh, individual rights protection act did not include sexual orientation I remember meeting with a couple of, of individuals from from Grand Prairie who, who had been in in a situation where they were discriminated against and they, they were told that you know nice but go home um, because there was nothing that could be done um, uh, with that. In my case, there was a sense of seeing a lot of people that I knew who were in their early 20s and maybe 30 who were dying and had died of AIDS. And then we had this kind of thing going on at the same time. It was a very ugly time in, in many kinds of ways. For reasons I don't exactly know, um, in, in, um, 19, in St. Patrick's Day in, St. Uh, in, in 1992, I decided to run for city council. <laughs> And I won. So, I mean, I'm even, even more of a surprise. <laughs> hey, so we're just listening to the uh, Chancellor's Forum uh, on the 20th anniversary of the uh, Del Delwyn Vreen decision. And I'm just going to be sort of jumping to different points uh, in the talk to make sure that we hear um, from uh, everybody who is directly involved as well. So the next clip that I'm going to uh, play uh, the two uh, councils uh, who were involved in bringing the case to the Supreme Court um, are discussing and explaining exactly what the legal considerations of the case were. Um, they talk about Egan in it, which is uh, a case that was uh, tried before or considered before uh, Delwyn Reen, in which it didn't go, it didn't support um, establishing gay rights uh, on, on certain grounds. Um, and so they're going to explain when they refer to Egan, that's what they mean. So they're going to explain sort of what the actual um, reasoning and, and thinking behind um, the Wren decision was. Uh, so it might pick up at a bit of a weird moment in them talking, but they're going to get to explaining exactly what the, the, the considerations were. So <laughs> there I was. So how did you... <laughs> I, I want to put this, I mean, to us today, it seems obvious that you were in the moral right. But the legal issues were more complicated than that because you weren't fighting a government's actions, you were fighting a government's refusal to act, 
a refusal to change the law. So how did that complicate the legal case that you had to make? The case was complicated on lots of fronts. Uh, when we started the case, um, the Charter of Rights and Freedoms uh, says nothing about sexual orientation. So we had to argue that although it, it didn't say sexual orientation, it should. And because it should, then so should Alberta's legislation. Fortunately for us, just before we got to the Court of Appeal, the Supreme Court of Canada found that sexual orientation, though not actually stated in the Charter, actually belonged in the Charter. But in a case of absolutely blatant discrimination, it was uh, federal pension legislation that said that same-sex couples were not entitled to the same pension rights as opposite-sex couples. They found that was not discriminatory, which is astonishing. So then we had our case, which was about what a government hadn't done, facing a court that found even obvious discrimination wasn't discrimination. So that was the, that was the challenge. So Julie, that, that case is the Egan decision. Mm -hmm. That's right. But did Egan give your, your arguments a way in? Yes, clearly. It, it, the broken pottery, I guess, of that decision at least had in it that gift that sexual orientation was, in fact, an analogous ground under the um, Charter, under Section 15 of the Charter. So that gave us the way in or gave um, everyone a way in to be able to um, speak about sexual orientation as one of the protected grounds of discrimination in the country. And there's another case, which I thought was quite fascinating, about whether British lawyers could be members of the British Columbia Law Society. That was what really established the fact that you could have an analogous ground. Well, Section 15 for British said, lawyers who won't, you know. Section 15 says there'll be no discrimination, blah, 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 and in particular, no discrimination on the following grounds. And so the case was made by Sheila very effectively before the court, and Justice Lemaire said, but it says in particular, which suggests that the list is not finite. And so that was a clever way that I guess it was drafted to be open-ended to ultimately contemplate including unwritten grounds. Well, the idea was that all historically disadvantaged groups should fall within the infinite list of categories in Section 15. So I want to take you back first to the Court of Appeal. Now, you had, to, I mean, just to give you the pricey, in case you did not read my really excellent piece. <laughs> <laughs> in case you read it quickly and have forgotten, Delwyn Vreen first with different legal counsel went before the uh, Court of Queen's bench to appeal his inability to go to the Human Rights Commission. And Madam Justice Anne Russell in the Court of Queen's bench ruled in a very eloquent judgment in Delwyn Vreen's favor and said that the province had to read in sexual orientation. The province was not happy. The government of Ralph Klein appealed that decision, which was how Sheila and Doug ended up in front of the Court of Appeal. What happened when you got to the Court of Appeal? Well, <laughs> I have to stop to say that we, we actually had a legal team even at the Court of Appeal, and yes. we had two other lawyers. June Ross, who was the professor of constitutional law, I don't know if she's here tonight, and Joanne Combs, who was in our office. So we had, I think, really amazingly strong um, work done in order to prepare for that case. So there were four of us at that point. So we got up there to argue the same arguments that made it all the way to the Supreme Court of Canada, and we had a very hostile reception. One of the things that I remember we tried to do in anticipation of the hearing was to put in an affidavit what 
I guess would be described as a Brandeis brief for those law students in the, in the room. Putting in evidence of all of the harms visited upon gay and lesbian people, and now it would be transgender as well. The psychological harms, the suicide rates, the, you know, an affidavit from Dr. Lauren Warnicke indicating there were real harms. People were dying as a result of discrimination, literally dying or, or committing suicide and, and so on, or uh, having other very adverse effects. So that was not permitted. By the time we got to the Supreme Court of Canada, Lauren had published an article on that subject in a peer-reviewed journal. And so it was completely legitimate to put that in among our authorities. And that was the first Donnybrook, right? <laughs> McClellan basically accused me of being unethical for putting that into the materials. So I think at that point, he turned around and wasn't, <laughs> wasn't going to be facing us for the balance of the hearing. I mean, just, just imagine, Sheila Greckle gets up in front of the Court of Appeal, Alberta's highest court, and the judge who is at the center of that panel swivels in his chair how did you react when he turned, he literally turned his back on you? I think there was a certain amount of anger by that point. <laughs> <laughs> and anger will take you a long way. Adrenaline and anger, I don't know how you remember it, but I, I remember being angry. And I'm thinking, I don't have a lot of court experience. Pass <laughs> <laughs> um, note to Sheila and say, this strikes me as not a good sign. <laughs> So we're listening to the Chancellor's Forum on the 20th anniversary of the Vren decision, uh, which went to the Supreme Court, in which uh, two of the uh, councils, Sheila Greckel and uh, Doug Stollery, are discussing um, their different experiences going through the different uh, court uh, levels to bring this eventually to the Supreme Court. And we're going to get into uh, a part of the talk where they discuss uh, the sort of repercussions that were felt within certainly Alberta's gay community uh, once the Supreme Court made its decision that Alberta had to recognize sexual orientation um, in their human rights uh, legislation. Before we get to that, though, I just wanted to... Um, just sort of explain uh, what Ralph Klein's reaction was to the Supreme Court decision. So, in 1998, when the Supreme Court decided that Alberta's Individual Rights Protection Act um, violated Section 15 of the Canadian Charter of Rights and Freedoms, uh, and it violated it because it failed to list sexual orientation as an illegal ground of discrimination. Um, it produced uh, the many effects, uh, many positive, what are seen as positive effects for lesbian and gay uh, citizens in Alberta and across the country, like it re in that it reinforced Section 15 of the Charter um, to include gay and lesbian individuals. It established, quote, that an employer pronouncement of sin would not take precedence over fundamental human rights, uh, and that being because uh, in at King's College, um, the uh, college uh, fired Vrend um, saying that uh, homosexuality was a sin. Um, but Ralph Klein, who was premier at the time, his reaction was to um, first say that he was going to, he threatened to impose the notwithstanding clause, which meant that uh, Alberta would not essentially give in or uh, uh, acknowledge this part of the Charter of Rights and Freedoms. Uh, he didn't do that, though. Uh, he decided not to. Instead, what he did is he just simply refused to add sexual orientation as a prohibited grounds of discrimination to the province's human rights legislation. So he was given 
given a certain period of time and he just didn't do it. It wasn't until 2009 when uh, PC Premier Ed Stelmack did add sexual orientation to Alberta Human Rights, Alberta's Human Rights Act. But interestingly, he also introduced parental rights into the act. This was all through Bill 44. And at the same time, he defunded uh, gender reassignment surgery in the province. That's what that's what I know. A lot of people call it different things, but it's called technically gender reassignment surgery, according to the government. Um, So you can see sort of what happened here in terms of the Alberta government's reaction to these things that the first was Ralph Klein um, decided to do nothing for 10 years as what can be seen as a very passive aggressive way not to deal with the issue and still had implications for Albertans. and also just sort of like giving a giant message about what Alberta thinks of gay and lesbian rights. Um, but then when Premier Ed Stelmack finally did add sexual orientation to the Alberta Human Rights um, Act, he introduced parental rights, which is largely seen as a way for um, people in the province to get around uh, what is being taught in schools, that parents have a right um, that sort of supersedes, you know, a bunch of different things, including what their children should have a right to learn and all of those sorts of things, and defunded gender reassignment surgery. It was re- gender reassignment surgery was refunded. Um, by Premier Allison Redford um, a short time later, but for a really weird period of time, it was defunded. And it's largely seen as um, punishing, obviously, a marginalized part of the LGBTQ community when they were um, sort of implored to add this to uh, human rights uh, legislation in the province by the Supreme Court. So uh, we just have a little bit of time left, but um, I wanted to... uh, I don't think I have time to play um, the discussion of the fallout uh, what, in terms of what happened within the gay community after this decision was made. You can check out the talk um, at the University of Alberta's website um, in which, in this section, uh, Michael Fair discusses um, uh, his experiences with what happened because he was a city councillor at the time and he actually received um, a huge proportion of the backlash, including death threats to his office and all these sorts of things. There were protests both in celebration of the Supreme Court decision and protests um, uh, against it and that were very homophobic uh, and very angry. Um, as they say in this talk, uh, it's, it, this all happened sort of around Easter, and so it seems like the uproar against the Supreme Court decision um, sort of tapered off within a week, um, but it still had some very lasting effects, and you'll, you'll hear if you go and watch the video for yourself that um, it, it, it really um, affected the uh, lesbian and gay community um, in Edmonton. I wanted to make sure to play... Um, one final part in which uh, people had submitted questions to the panelists before um, the talk and the moderator, Paula Simons, um, addresses one of those questions um, that I, that she said she was asked many times and that was actually a question that was put in the comment section of the feature that she had written about Vrend. Uh, so we're going to play that and then I'll come back with some sort of... Uh, closing thoughts on uh, the entire thing. Matters. We've talked a little bit, we've alluded to off and on through the evening about the newer chapters, the newer battles still to fight. I have to say this is a pretty cis panel. See, I can say cis because I've got a 21-year-old daughter and I'm super cool. Um, (laughs) 
But this is a very cis panel. There is no one here who is trans. There is no one here who is gender neutral or twin spirited, two spirited. So maybe this is a tough question for us to ask or to answer as this panel. To what extent did Vreen lay the groundwork for trans rights? And what can the trans community, I guess, take away? I mean, since my piece went online, I've heard from quite a few people in the trans community who are very angry and said, we were left behind. This didn't help us. Do you think that, I mean, did it just take 20 years for Vreen to help them? I can tell you my experience in my own practice. When Vreen was done, then I started to get a lot of phone calls from trans people. And I, I was surprised by that. And, and I had the sense, I, I, my hope was that the success of Vreend um, empowered trans people to think that perhaps um, the situation uh, was, there was more hope and so more energy to the fights. I had more employment cases where trans people were coming forward and saying, I need to come out at work, I need to transition. And that started to happen. In my own anecdotal experience, that started to happen. And, and I've, I hope it's still happening today. So Chris, you've got a finger out a little bit more on the pulse than I do. What's going on? Well, I think Green, for many, was Alberta's Stonewall. It was that galvanizing moment where allies and communities came together to fight back against what was state government oppression and won and realized, you know, we could keep using the law and keep using the tools that were available. People like Julie and others who were plodding along, striking down the legislation, making the changes because the government wasn't going to do it on its own. And so I think it, it created a pathway and an opening for other identities, other experiences to walk through, right? Without Vreen toiling the garden, the road, it allowed uh, other experiences and identities to come together. And, and we're seeing that play out right now in our school systems and places where, you know, trans youth are still fighting to be able to use the bathrooms. There's something as simple as that. And the visceral kind of backlash or the stereotypes that are being portrayed of gay and lesbian people 20 years ago are what many trans individuals are dealing with now. So I'm hopeful we can catch up a lot quicker and we can build these coalitions and these uh, allies to walk through these doors of equality together. I mean, certainly when I spoke to Delwyn last month, he said to me that to his mind, this was always as much a case about trans people as anything else. And he said, it's, he, to him, it was about everyone. It was equality for everybody. But I guess it takes a while. One of the lessons that I think um, Sheila's, um, the way she managed this case, I think really underscored is the importance of allies. Sheila was really careful to bring along interveners. And after the Vereen decision, when this whole notwithstanding stuff hit the fan, there were a lot of allies, because it's not fair to make Michael. It's not fair, and it, and it isn't even effective for the impugned minority to come forward and say, please don't hate me. It, it's, you know, <laughs> it's just kind of, you know, even if you say it like really mad, it's, it doesn't have the effect of people who are allies and who are already in the mainstream and have the, the, the legitimacy and can say those things. And so it's our role to be those allies and those voices for our trans brothers and sisters as well. And that's a lesson that Vreen taught us as well, that we need to be our, each other's allies. So I want to talk to, to Doug and Sheila about that. 
So that's uh, uh, one of the sort of concluding uh, statements that was made at the uh, Chancellor's Forum for the 20th anniversary of the Vren decision at the Supreme Court. Um, and this was brought up a lot, and it's been brought up a lot since uh, the decision went through and how these different things have been handled and how the trans community at different points has either um, been uh, sort of completely um, left off the table of priorities and uh, been told uh, that they have to wait and their time will come later. Um, it's worth noting that uh, Vrend was decided in 1998, 20 years ago, and uh, gender identity and gender expression were only added to the Canadian Human Rights uh, Act and the Criminal Code last year. So they did have to wait 19 years uh, for something to happen. And you hear this in uh, social movements um, and in the gay community all the time that sacrifices have to be made for one group uh, to put the other group forward. Trans activists at the time argued that um, uh, that people wouldn't know uh, and people wouldn't um, the backlash wouldn't increase if you added trans to um, these different fights because the 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 backlash was already so huge. So people, it was sort of an argument like, we're already fighting this huge fight. Why don't we just add this as well? And people within the gay community said, um, effectively said, you're going to bring us down. Uh, we can't. It's too much of a risk. We can't include you in these fights. All of these sorts of things. <laughs> 